People with big hearts are drawn to this work, and people with big hearts tend not to have spent a lot of their time thinking about financial success and self-promotion and getting comfortable with putting themselves out there, asking other people to spend large amounts of money on the service that they offer. Welcome to the Life Story Coach Podcast, where you'll hear interviews, tips, and advice on the craft and business of personal history and life story writing with your host, Amy Woods Butler. This is where we talk about the life story business, helping clients record their memories, their life stories, their reflections on life. So helping them record that so that they can share it with their kids and their grandkids, with family, with friends, with whoever they want to share it with. And one of the most frequent questions that I get from listeners is about money. So how do we figure out how much we should charge for a project? How do we figure out how much um, a project is worth? Or how do we do those sales conversations? And I always suspect that um, in most cases, behind these questions, there's some big fear lurking or, or the dread of talking about money. Um, very often we have blocks about money and it makes having money conversations with our clients difficult. It makes it difficult to know how to charge and it makes it difficult to even put those invoices in the mail sometimes. That's why I've invited Sarah White to come on the show. Sarah is a practicing life story professional and she's been in the field for a number of years. We'll talk about the work that she does, but what I really want to focus on, especially at the beginning of this, this conversation, is a workshop that she's doing to specifically help life story professionals get over their hangups with money. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Amy, for the opportunity to be here. I really enjoy doing this kind of thing. So thank you. Great. Yeah. And I know that you, um, I, I know that you're a teacher by heart. So yes. and I think a lot of us probably are who are in this field. Um, but why don't you start by uh, just giving a little brief introduction to the listeners so they so they know a little bit about Sarah and who you are. Yes. Well, it's funny you should say that about teaching because I had no idea that I liked to teach or you know, had any aptitude in this area until I got into doing personal history work and got interested in teaching memoir writing workshops, you know, mm. life story writing. Um, so my, uh, my very brief bio, you know, a checkered career in entrepreneurship, graphic design, writing, publishing, um, left me feeling that too much of my work was about money and not enough about the heart. And when I discovered personal history, I really found the antidote to that. And so it was 2002 when I met a personal historian and realized that she was doing something that I had skills towards and would really like to do. Um, in 2006, I launched my business, First Person Productions, um, in 2012, I sort of rescoped from doing the oral history approach to more of a focus on coaching people to do their own writing. It really gave me satisfaction to see people's confidence and their skills grow. And that's pretty much what I've been doing since in my personal history business. And I served on the Association of Personal Historians board starting in about 2004 and was president of that group from 2012 to 2015, a service that I really enjoyed giving to the field. But it gave me a real background in, you know, the problems that personal historians face, whether I was, you know, working on what would we be having as workshops at our conferences or building our education program. That was something I was involved in. I really began to see the need for 
the kind of money conversations that weren't happening. If there's any listeners who don't know what the association that, that you just referred to is, that was the Association of Personal Historians. I've mentioned it on the podcast before, and it was one of the reasons that I started this podcast, um, the demise of the association, which was around for about 20 years. And it was a great educational resource for people in the business. Um, and they just shut down last year in 2017. So, um, so that's what, yeah, I, I know that you were very involved mm -hmm. with it and you know, you were a yeah. past president. So, so it's, I wasn't even thinking about that part of it when I invited mm -hmm. you onto the show, but you must really have, um, an in with, this business and the multitude of challenges that people face. I, I think I would not be exaggerating if I said I was among the you know top 10 people in the, the world, really. It, that sounds like such a braggy thing to say. But you know, having talked to dozens and dozens of personal historians around the world, I've taught classes for people in New Zealand and Australia, even online. And I, I feel like I do have my pulse on what's going on in the this business and what people need to succeed in it. Sarah, you created a workshop specifically for personal historians, Write Your Way to a Better Relationship with Money. Tell us why. What is it about this profession specifically um, that we need this kind of workshop? <laughs> well, it's because people, <laughs> like with, like people with big hearts, it's that people with big hearts are drawn to this work. And people with big hearts tend not to have spent a lot of their time thinking about financial success and self-promotion and getting comfortable with putting themselves out there, asking other people to spend large amounts of money on the service that they offer. And I'll tell you specifically how this came about. Um, so connecting the dots from, you know, leading the Association of Personal Historians led to working with the International Institute for Reminiscence and Life Review, we just call it the Institute, on building a certificate program uh, designed for life story workers people who work in reminiscence settings in institutions and people who have independent practices like personal historians. And I developed a business curriculum for that. Other teachers do the modules on, you know, the field and the practice of personal history. But I do, so you want to start an independent practice. Here's what you need to know. And as I was teaching the first, you know, we've done maybe four years of the program now, the first few times through my class, I was seeing this huge fear and anxiety coming up in my students as I introduced the business stuff, particularly the marketing, the pricing, the sales. They loved thinking about creating their products. They loved thinking about having independent businesses and being able to be fluid in their, you know, managing their own work life. But oh my gosh, the money stuff was a problem for them. Well, after a few years of teaching the class, I realized my students came into module three, my class, knowing stuff I didn't know about the field of reminiscence and life review. So I asked if I could take the certificate program myself, and I did. I did it legitimately as a student. And when it came time to design my capstone project, I said, well, you know, teaching is something that really interests me, and I see this real need for training in this area. For my capstone, I will develop curriculum for a class about our relationship with money. And I did that. And so the first time I taught the class, it was as, you know, earning my capstone 
um, degree. And then I've done the curriculum one more time since then. I'm getting ready now to launch another class and keep evolving the curriculum and refining it as we go. But it, it proved very valid, very helpful to people from the evaluations I got back even from that first time through. And based on the name, Write Your Way to a Better Relationship with Money, I'm guessing that you don't, there's there's a lot of advice out there, especially for entrepreneurs or solopreneurs, you know, people starting off their own businesses or bootstrapping. There's an awful lot of advice out there um, given by authorities and, you know, from on high, you know, sitting at the the pulpit saying, this is how you should act. This is how, you know, the mindset Mm -hmm. that you should adopt. But it sounds to me like if you're using a, um, a method that was intended for people to look inside themselves and reflect and reminisce, you're taking that and you're applying it to attitudes people have towards money. But it sounds like you're asking people to really take a a dive into their psyche and figure out their own particular tangles that they have or unexamined assumptions or, you know, where things might go a little bit awry. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. You're right on. Um, And I should have mentioned it's based on James Biren's guided autobiography method, his approach, um, which is a 10-week workshop format involving um, prompting questions and then writing you on the topics on those questions. And you move through eight or 10 different life themes in that. And one of his themes is money. So my idea was really to take what he did with the one week about money and like work career stuff and unpack that and go deeper. So I basically started from the questions that he posed. I kept the format of the guided autobiography class pretty much the way you introduce with some discussion and raising some thoughts and then people read and share their work with each other each week. Um, So it's based around that guided autobiography approach and and workshop format, we just keep the focus laser sharp on our relationships and attitudes about money. On your website, um, you this sentence, I'm going to read it because I think it encapsulates it beautifully. You write, we uncover old bad stories we've told ourselves and replace them with stories that guide us to earn, spend, and save comfortably and in alignment with our values. So you're talking about earning, spending, and saving. And the earning part is the part that really interests me because I think that is where a lot of life story professionals um, you know, get a little faint of heart. They they don't know how to get over the the difficulty of talking about these, talking about money issues, much less thinking about them. Somebody commented, I think it might have been one of your coaching students or or maybe one of your workshop participants, um, made the really good point that through working through this, uh, that opened up another line of questioning for doing interviews with our storytellers. Because I, I don't know if you're like me, but when you're sitting down and interviewing somebody whose who's story you're go- going to be writing, money doesn't come up very often at all. I mean, I think we probably talk about sex and mm-hmm. dying more often than, than money. It's a taboo. It's a total cultural taboo that we do not talk about money. You don't ask people what they earn. You don't ask them how they spend their money. And this keeps us in the dark. This is why we have old bad stories. And have you been surprised by anything that 
people have come up with? Or maybe have you faced any of your own demons regarding attitudes towards earning specifically, um, the earning (laughs) part of it? That's a good insight, Amy. I mean, the teachers choose topics they want to know more about, right? <laughs> right. And I, I found putting together the curriculum was absolutely life-changing for me. Um, I began asking for more money. I began earning more money as soon as I began asking for it and reached a comfort level that I really didn't know I could, uh, mm-hmm. both in talking about money and in receiving money from my clients. So, um, And I think it was life-changing for the people who took it that first time, too. I I think this curriculum really has some power to it. And it's not so much that I have big insights I'm going to give you and wave my wand and now you know it too. It's that you do the work. It's the work of unpacking your own attitudes, realizing where they came from, whether they still have relevance for you or whether they don't, and it's time to put them away. And it's about writing some new stories. And I mean that metaphorically as well as literally that guide you forward. Here's what I value. Here's how what I do aligns with it. Here's why it's valuable to my customers. And they should be, well, it's priceless. So they should be willing to spend a lot on it. That's my Mm -hmm. thought. And do you think that there is um, a certain value in actually writing, in the the participants writing this stuff down rather than just hearing somebody talk about it or Mm -hmm. even just discussing it? Oh, yes. It's... um, It's the healing power of expressive writing. So you're pulling out areas of your life where you've maybe taken on some damage and maybe you've never examined that damage, but it is actively sabotaging you. Um, A thing called upper limiting. It's from the work of Gay Henricks. I read about it in a book called The Big Leap. And this has been out for decades. This is not new. But how we have a sort of regulator or thermostat that when we start to succeed a little too much, we have ways of keeping ourselves where we're comfortable. And uh, that's an example of the kind of um, information that I bring into the class. And then we you know, think about where are we upper limiting ourselves and we write about that and learn how to recognize and change that pattern. Um, so the class is very much a mix of um, sort of some, I don't quite want to say theory, but kind of some learned ideas about um, how to bring more affluence into your life and this writing to unpack what we feel and what aligns best with the values we want to go forward with. It is, I do very little touching on actual techniques of sales and stuff. I have a little bit in the curriculum about your brand and your presence because that comes straight out of this psychological base how you how you be in the world, how you display yourself. Um, you know, you need to have that at the level of the clients you'd like to attract. You're not going to bring in caviar going around with a, you know, sort of cheese sandwich attitude about your own value. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. I might get some flack from some male listeners or even female listeners, but you and I were both part of the Association of Personal Historians. We we saw the makeup of the, the membership, and there's definitely men who do this kind of work. But I would say, especially for the for the book writing, the people who actually write books, it's a female-heavy industry. And I'm wondering if that has something to do with the fact that 
many of us can be too timid when we're trying to um, create a business that will work for us from a financial standpoint. Well, there's certainly a truth to that. And, um, you know, more women than men have signed up for the class, but I have had men in each uh, cohort that I've taught. And I've actually found that the, the same issues present because they are men who are interested in non-traditional high-earning fields. Um, so while you know my assumptions are this is a female problem, and one of the books I work with, Barbara Stanny's book, Overcoming Under-Earning, is pretty much entirely pitched to women, um, it's still something that men encounter in their lives if they have an idealistic um, service orientation. Um, so think about the professions that we reward financially, you know, sales, um, leadership. Think about what we reward uh, not so well, social work, teaching, um, helping professions, ministry. Our culture is set up so that people with heart don't make money. And then we teach this little myth that, well, it's say it, you can have the money, but you have to give up your integrity or you can have your integrity, but you'll have to give up the money. Mm. And I'm here to mm. say that is not true. And here's something that I just have loved about this class. As we get into kind of the looking forward part of it, I ask people, if you did have all the money you needed, what would you spend it on? You know, if you had enough that you didn't have to worry about spending it down, what would you spend it on? And the list of things people say is so amazing. You know, they're all good things that would bring good into the world. They're not, I would buy a faster car. <laughs> they are, I would open a nonprofit. You know, I would, I would bring storytelling to homeless people. And, and it's, it's all good from the heart stuff. Personal historians, reminiscence, uh, life story workers are people with wonderful values that deserve to thrive in this world. And it just sucks, frankly, that we are in a cultural mindset where it's the sales that brings in the big money and the heart is something that should not be rewarded. Mm -hmm. So probably less a, uh, a female attitude problem and... Uh, and I don't even want to say problem, really, mm -hmm. just something that needs to be addressed and more of a the type of character that is drawn right. um, to, to this kind of work. Right. Well, uh, when we're talking about money and you, you say, you know, it's a it's sort of a, a cultural mindset that we have around it. The thing that I've found is that when we go out and we meet with somebody who is who is potentially going to become a client of ours, there are. So, and I say this all the time on this podcast, there are so few of us who are doing this, relatively speaking. You know, we're, we're spread pretty thin. Um, so most people have never run into anybody like us. You know, most, yeah. most of our clients are calling us and they don't have anything to compare us with. And really, it is up to us um, to set the tone for that sales conversation, for that money conversation. Um, because they're not thinking, oh, this is this is a social work, you know, this mm -hmm. is uh, akin to a social worker, and I know that they don't earn very much money. The clients don't know; That's they have true. no idea, right? And I think that gives us um, that gives us some power as long as we can face our own hangups and we can work through them, and we can get to a point, a place where we are confident in the value of what we're delivering. You know, I, I think that's nine tenths of uh, we're nine tenths of the way there. 
Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and that's why people who survive the startup years, you know, get through that first three to five years where you're getting known in your community for doing this and getting your skills together and getting over your imposter syndrome. Oh, I'm faking it, you know. Um, oh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> There's an end to the imposter syndrome? Oh, shoot. <laughs> I've been doing oh, this I think since so. 2010. So. Well, <laughs> take my class. No. Um, <laughs> the, it, it is true that... Um, Clients have nothing to compare us with. And so we do set the tone. And if we have confidence when we say um, this takes time and it takes expertise and you'll be paying for that and you'll never be happier with anything you spent money on in your life, you know, I I really believe that. Um, So it's really about getting past the the damage from your childhood or your family. And and here's something I'd like to, to... touch on here, which is epigenetics. That is the way that DNA can actually be changed by trauma that we experience, and then that gets passed along as tendencies in um, children and grandchildren. So think about the fact that um, many people, um, the people, you know, my age, baby boomers, were raised by a generation of people who were damaged in their childhood by the Great Depression and by real severe money problems, or at least the fear of money problems. And so I think that affected the people who gave birth to us and that we are undoing that damage now as we learn to be adults in the world. Um, So it's not a small thing to ask, what attitudes about money did you pick up from your family? Because most of us picked up some attitudes that came out of that severe depression and lack and want and are irrelevant in the incredibly, you know, comfortable material world we now live in. Even if we have modest means, we have all that takes to live a comfortable life. So really it's Mm. a a time when we can worry more about living in sync with our values than having to do whatever it takes to, you know, bring home some food for the family. Right. And I like the fact that you are talking about, you know, this whole conversation centers around really discovering, um, examining and discovering what your personal values are. Mm -hmm. So it's not about, um, uh, it's not about some, um, you know, one, one size fits all, um, idea. It's, it's really looking inside yourself and seeing where your values are. And I think that message probably speaks loud and clear to people who are engaged with a profession that deals with matters of the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's always that sort of shadow, um, that sort of shadowy fear that we shouldn't be charging for something, <laughs> right. you know? Um, and, and, you know, I've, I used to have a little conversation with myself before I went into sales conversations or, you know, a sales meeting with a potential new client. And I would just, you know, basically tell myself, if you're not charging enough to make a living, you cannot serve this person. You will not be able to do it. Um, You know, only people who have are independently wealthy or have Mm -hmm. independent means, you know, then I suppose if you decide that you want to do this as a volunteer, then you can do that. But for the vast majority of of us, um, we, we lose the ability to serve 
if we do not um, face up to these things about money and work through them and get to a healthy place. That is really well put, Amy, and I absolutely believe that. Um, At first, it was just something I held in myself, this what you were just saying, I have to make this business thrive or I won't be here to serve people tomorrow. And I began to see, well, I charge people who can afford a lot, a higher price, knowing it allows me to use some of my time to do pro bono work and to serve populations um, that don't have access to the money to pay for this kind of professional service. And I got to a point where I was even, I'm, you know, I'm comfortable saying that to my clients. Yes, you're paying this rate. This is what I think this will cost. And this is based on what I need to live on and to provide some of my services pro bono to people who need it. Oh, and how do people react when they hear that? They like it. They, You know, that, that puts my values out there in a way that I think makes us both feel good about what we're doing. Okay, so if somebody is, um, you know, maybe thinking about taking your workshop, but they they want to try to work through a little bit of this on their own first, do you have any tips or um, any maybe writing prompts that people can do to get started on, on their own to start examining their attitudes and assumptions about money? Yeah, yeah. Well, an easy way to do this, of course, would be to find the Buren. I mean, he has a book that's got all the prompting questions in them. But I'll just, I, there's two questions that I use when I do the, the preview of the class. Uh, and one is, you know, really the looking as far back as you can. You know, the, what attitudes did you get from your family? And that's realizing we each come from two different money stories because our father came from some uh family setting and some story and our mother came from some setting and some story. And if we're from a blended family, well, maybe there's two or three or four stories going on and they will have some areas where they conflict. And so we'll grow up with some kind of like, I don't get it. Or there's cognitive dissonance about this. I'm just asking yourself the question. You come from two different money stories. What are they? How did they conflict? And the other one would be looking forward, that question I mentioned before. Imagine you had wealth. What would you use it for? Because that's the one that makes your values just pop into the foreground. Well, thank you. I, I, I love hearing about this stuff. And I think that listeners will enjoy it too, because it's, it's an issue. It's an issue almost every time that somebody reaches out to me. Um, it's, you know, it's something that we can't get around. Yeah. And we have to face up to if we want to, like you said, if we want to have a business that thrives. I would like to shift gears a little bit and talk about um, a couple of things that you do with your business model. And so I'm not sure if this is old information or not, um, but I, even if it is, I want to talk about it because I think it's so cool. You at one point had a monthly writing salon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, I'm so glad you asked because next week is our fifth anniversary. <laughs> oh, congratulations. If my salon were a child, it would be going off to kindergarten now. Um, the The salon came out of teaching workshops at local libraries and they got so popular that people would sign up and take it again and again, and there wouldn't be any seats for new students. So I finally made a rule. You can only take the workshop three times, then you have to graduate. And I started the um, first Monday, first person, I call it, because we do it on the first Monday of every month. And it's for people who are writing their own stories. So first Monday, first person. That's Uh, clever. I like that. (laughs) I'll tell you where that came from in a moment. But um, 
So you graduated from the Start Writing Your Memoir workshop to just coming to the salon where we don't do any teaching. We just get together and have a little light snacks and then people sign up to read, first come, first served. And I, you know, get anywhere, you know, 10 or 12 on a snowy night, you know, 15 or 20 on a, on a good night. And, um, you know, listeners are welcome as well as readers, obviously. You can't have 15 or 20 people read in a night, but it's sort of like um, pre-moth. You know, these are stories that maybe are just a first draft of something and you just want some feedback on whether it's working or not. Is there any kind of critiquing that goes on or is it really just sort of a open mic, share your story kind of um, atmosphere? Well, there is time for feedback for each reader. And I basically say, you've got 10 minutes, you know, if you read a piece of 10 minutes long, you're not going to get much feedback. If you read a five minute piece, you'll get some feedback. And that works. And, you know, we will take the gloves off if something is really just confusing or not working. Um, but it's all done with such a spirit of love and interest. It really just helps people. I mean, just reading your story in front of an audience and you see where they lean in or where they look confused or where you hear a gasp or a giggle. And it might not be where you thought you would, you know, the, mm. the delivering a story in audio and oral format like that is really very instructive to a writer. Yeah, that that sounds really fascinating. Okay, so I'm sure other people are having this question too. Does it generate any business for you? You know, how would you connect the dots on that? What it does is keep me visible to a group of people as someone who does this for a living. Every time I introduce the salon, I say who I am. I say I write, I teach, I work one-on-one, I coach people. Um, And it's Sure, you know, I'd have to look at my client list and really think, now, where did this person hear about me to connect those dots for you? Mm -hmm. But it sounds like this is a labor of love then for you. Well, to to be visible in the community, but it sounds like you've really found something you're passionate about doing. It certainly is a labor of love, but um, how do you promote a personal history business? About all you can do is be visible because people don't know what the words mean. When they want it, they don't know what to even Google for. So I do several volunteer things that keep me visible in this community as a person who writes and is interested in history. And the result has been that I get, you know, people contact me. People say, I got your name from so-and-so or I, you know, wasn't often people graduate from the workshop to working with me one-on-one. They will. So they hire you for your coaching service. Yeah, and it might be a year or two after they took the workshop, but they'll be like, I took your workshop a couple times. I've been working on it on my own. Now I'm up against this block. I don't know how to get around. Maybe it's material that's too painful and they want a hand, you know, at their side. Maybe it's um, that they've written little episodic bits, but they don't know how to stitch it all together. Whatever it is, we figure out a way forward and we work together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's fun, isn't it? I, I've almost, um, almost all of my business is me sitting and interviewing somebody and then writing the story 100% for them. But I have done some um, coaching mm. for people who have the creative urge and want to write, you know, most people are like, No, you know, couldn't write my way out of the bag. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, I, 
and I think, well, thank goodness for you people. Yeah, um, you but but it's um, you're using different skills when you're helping when you're coaching somebody, and it's just fun. I, I think it's you know I learn stuff when I do it, yeah. and it makes you realize. Um, I don't know if this is your your um, experience or not, but it makes you realize how much experience we've accumulated, mm, yeah. and how much we know about building stories about telling stories. And, uh, you know, I think we all suffer from this, uh, this delusion that if we know something, eh, probably everybody else knows it too. Well, right? See, there's the imposter syndrome again. But yeah, the coaching <laughs> is it's an amazing experience. I sort of, right. I go in thinking, well, I wonder how I'll ever come up with enough to talk about for this coaching session. You know, my sessions are usually an hour and a half. I'm driving over there, you know, holding the person in my mind and thinking about our last session or, you know, what they've talked about and thinking, how will I ever come up with anything to say about that that would fill an hour and a half? And then it's like, where did the time go? <laughs> exactly. And I've, I've had the same experience yeah. where, you know, and I have so much where I feel like I'm going to kind of help, you know, cover with them. And we don't, we get to just such a tiny portion of it because, they're beginning their journey with learning how to write and learning how to create stories. And, um, and you know, I've, I've been at it for way longer than I've even been right. doing the story scribe, my, my life story business. So that's, that's what I mean when I say, you know, we, we, we know what we know yeah. and we think that we assume that everybody else knows it, but we have some pretty specialized skills and it can really help people out in the world when we share that. Well, this has been great. I, I have other questions for you, but I know that we're kind of getting short on our time. Um, yeah. One thing, well, one thing I am going to backtrack. You said that you have several different ways that you volunteer in the community. And one of them is um, the salon. I assume the salon is, there's no entrance fee or anything. Right. It's all free. Okay. Um, and then what are some of the other ways that you get out in the community and do volunteer work to, to raise your visibility? Well, the, the other thing I do is uh, uh, for 10 years, I, I just resigned from it. But for 10 years, I ran what was called the East Side History Club. A neighborhood community center was our sponsor, gave us the meeting room for no charge and managed the mailing list for us. And other than that, it was just uh, me and another local historian convening people. We we met like, you know, nine times a year. We'd take a little time off in the summer and the dead of winter, but we would have meetings spring and fall where we'd have a topic of local interest or else we'd just invite people to come and reminisce around a topic um, I'm in Madison, Wisconsin. It's a city, you know, based on four lakes. So we'd ask people, you know, talk to me about uh, lakes and water and what what did you do in the summer, you know, swimming and the lifeguards. What did you do in the winter? The ice skating, the ice boats, the, you know, subjects that made people reflect back on their childhood and their ex local experiences. It was really oral history technique, you know, gathering local information and sharing it. Um, but it was very popular. We ended up publishing a book of local history. Just last year, we published a second edition of it with more local history that had come to light. Micro history, you know, just one side of town, the east side of Madison. Um, but that really got, you know, my name out there as a person who knows the local history and is a good public speaker and has this passion for bringing people together to share their stories. And that's produced clients as well and speaking opportunities and other things. So uh, that turned out, I mean, I just did it because it interested me and the neighborhood community center director asked me to do it. She said, you know, we're losing the stories of our oldest residents. 
and one thing led to another, <laughs> you know, it was wonderful. It sounds like fun. Yeah. I've I've thought of trying to do something with the library um, because you know libraries, they're uh, they base their sales numbers if if that's what you want to call it mm-hmm. on the number of people that they have through their door. You yeah. know how many people they're servicing and and I've often thought that that would be you know people know to go to the library for lectures and right. workshops and, and things like that. And I, yeah, I, I really like your idea of it not being a genealogy group, not being, you know, about the, you know, the local history that's sort of above everything. It's actually people telling their stories. Right. Um, and that's, that's just fun. It's, it's fun to be involved with. It's fun to listen to. I mean, you know, that's why you and I are doing what we're doing, right. obviously. Uh, well, I want to speak to your point about libraries. I realized I used to, in the beginning, offer my workshops through senior centers. Well, nobody under 75 is going to enter the doors of a senior center. (laughs) They just don't identify with it. I began offering them at libraries and getting a much more diverse um, age range and other kinds of diversity as well, you know, ethnicity and race and background economically. So um, libraries really are people who care about words and books are connected through libraries. So they are absolutely, I think, your best bet as far as offering workshops or speeches or any kind of, you know, whether it's a one-off or a multi-part thing. Um, and the library has the means to to publicize it, right? right? I mean, they're, they're already connected into the community. They're already having, the, you know, they have email exactly. lists. Exactly. And that's very valuable. when you walk right. through the door. Right. Um, I, will, I should point out that when I teach through libraries, I get paid through an honorarium by the library and the workshops are offered free. Um, that's part of life. It's, it's our local library systems charter that events will always be free. So they have programming budgets and that's what I get paid out of. Um, but that's worth talking about in terms of workshops. And I've found it, it works for me much better than trying to manage my own marketing and mailing list and collect uh, fees and registrations. The library takes care of all that. I get my check and everybody gets a free workshop. It's great. And it really has been a great lead producer for me, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad that you shared that with everybody. Well, so what do you see in your future? Do you have any big changes coming up? Are you (laughs) continuing on the course that you're on right now? I'm on the course I'm on. Um, The reason I quit doing the Eastside History Club is because I enrolled in an MFA program. I'm halfway through a degree in creative nonfiction writing through a limited residency program. And... I think something new and big will open for me as I finish putting my time into school and start using what I learned um, to do better, bigger book projects for my clients. Well, I was hoping that you would bring that up because I knew from looking at your blog and and hearing you speak that I knew that you were in this MFA program. And, you know, that's one of my secret little (laughs) things on my bucket list that I hardly ever even admit to. So I'm really jealous that you're doing this. I think it's wonderful. It took me a long time to stop upper limiting myself like, oh, that's not something I could ever do. How could I find the time? How could I find the money? But I am seeing the power of my writing getting better week by week under this mentorship Mm -hmm. And so I'm absolutely glad I'm doing it. And I think it will be to my client's benefit. And, you know, I can teach in venues that, you know, like university settings once I have an MFA, that opportunities that weren't available to me without it. So 
And can you imagine um, a personal historian with an MFA, a personal historian being hired to teach at universities? That's what we need. Oh, absolutely. It'll help the uh, profession get a, a little more recognition, certainly. Right. Yeah. Well, good for you. Well, if if listeners are interested in your workshops or hearing more about you or your business, where do they go? Well, you go to firstpersonprod.com. That's uh, it's short for first person productions. But I sort of like the prod because I am a prod to my clients. You know, I keep you moving. <laughs> so it's firstpersonprod.com. And then you'll find an upcoming workshops tab and whatever I'm doing is there. And there's a little link at the bottom of that page that's upcoming workshops for personal historians. So I haven't yet scheduled the next, I was getting ready to schedule a fall session and then some personal stuff intervened, but I would like to get another um, round of write your way to a better relationship with money going. So I'd be interested to hear from people who would like to take the class. Good. Well, I hope you do. I tried to sign up for your earlier class and I had some conflicts yeah. um, right at the very you Yeah, know, midsummer's the, the like first that. Two classes I could, right, exactly. Right. Exactly. So yeah, I, I'm I'm eager yeah. to jump in whenever you get one going. So yeah. uh, Sarah, thank you so much for, for being with us today. This is great. And um, I look forward to hearing when you finish your MFA <laughs> program and how things go. Yeah, let's do a conversation about that someday. That'd be fun. I would love too. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, you take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, bye. And that does it for our interview with Sarah White of First Person Productions. I love doing this podcast partly because I just really like hearing everybody's ideas. I have learned so many good ideas. And, you know, I was very excited to hear about Sarah's workshop. Um, and I do plan on taking that the next go around um, if, if it works with both of our schedules. Um, but I was also pretty happy to hear about her salon and the work that she's done through the library. You know, I, I would love to hear if any of you all have done similar things with workshops, either at the public library or through any other um, local community centers, or even just on your own. Do you have a memoir writing group? Do you have a group of people who are sitting around and talking about the local history? That was another thing that she's done. Um, I think that I'm getting really interested in it because, honestly, another reason that I'm doing this podcast is because it gets me talking to more people. And now that my kids are out of the house, it's been little bit lonely, just me and the dog here. And I've been wanting to expand, you know, I'm, I'm working in my attic office an awful lot by myself. There's a lot of solitude, which I like, but too much of any good thing is just too much. So I've been thinking a lot about starting some workshops just because I do like teaching. I have a background with teaching and that's what I have my master's in, even though I never had a regular classroom. But I did teach German for a while um, through community college. I've taught adults, I've taught children, and I really enjoy it. I think that, you know, obviously that's part of the reason why I'm trying to do this podcast too. So if any of you have experience doing workshops or teaching classes and want to share, I, I would love to hear. Go over to the show notes, look at the lifestorycoach.com and search for episode 34 and just leave some comments in the show notes I, and you know share with everybody else a if um, you've done any of these things have they led to business for you is this a good viable way of 
building your client roster, doing workshops and doing classes, and B, um, share if it's been successful in other ways. You know, has it made you a better life story writer? Have you learned things that you can then bring back to your paying clients? Um, And just tell me about your experiences. I would really like to hear. I hope this has all been helpful. And as usual, I really hope that you can bring some of this back to your own business. If you have any other comments, if you have any suggestions on future topics, reach out to me at amy at thelifestorycoach.com or leave comments on thelifestorycoach.com episode 34. And here's a last minute update. Sarah has graciously offered listeners of the Life Story Coach podcast a $15 off coupon if you'd like to register for her Write Your Way to a Better Relationship with Money five-week workshop. If you'd like to receive that $15 off coupon code, head over to thelifestorycoach.com, look for episode 34, and you'll see a big orange button that will give you that code. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, go out and save someone's story.